What is the only U.S. state with an official drinking toast? <laughs> you said that with a lot of gusto, Ben. Yes. And what's so special about the new concept BMW car? Hmm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, it's always good to have a drink once in a while, isn't it, Marsh, you know? Yeah, yes, it is, Bob. What is the only U.S. state that has an official drinking toast? Connecticut, North Carolina, California, or New York? New York. New York. That makes sense. New York is it. What would it be, Marsh? Uh... Oh, uh, you're taking too long. The answer is you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. The answer is North Carolina. Okay. And that is where, here, here, isn't just words. They're the words to the North Carolina official state toast. Wow. Adopted in 1957, the toast is based on a poem by Mary Burke Kerr and Leonora Martin called A Toast, <laughs> written in 1904. Its first stanza reads, Here's to the land of the longleaf pine, the summer land where the sun doth shine, where the weak grow strong and the strong go great. Here's to down home, the old North State. And then you have to wait 12 more lines before the toast is over, and then everyone can have a drink. So here, here is a nice uh, contraction. <laughs> I guess. It's better than saying there, there, I guess, right? Yeah. So that's the North Carolina state drinking toast, the only wow. state with an official drinking toast. Okay. And here in uh, Wisconsin, it's Go Packers. That's the <laughs> official toast. Okay. Uh, besides the fact we can't afford it, Bob, what's so special about the new concept BMW car? Mm. <laughs> is it a feature? Is it some kind of feature? Yes. that uh, is it like a self-driving feature or something no. like that? No. Is it along those lines where artificial intelligence is involved? I suppose this must be part of intelligence, yes. Mm. An entertainment feature? No. Driving, self-parking, something no, like that? nothing like that. Let me just give you a clue. It's uh, the way it looks. What? It's the way it looks. Oh, so it can change colors. That's it. Is that right? 32 different colors. 32 different colors. It's How is that possible? It's called the new iVision D, D-E-E, -E, and that stands for Digital Emotional Experience. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so if you're in a bad mood, you can be black. If you're in a good mood, <laughs> it can be red. So you can change your mood, change the color of your car. It's a midsize electric sports sedan covered in futuristic panels that can change color on demand. Not only that, you can mix and match. You can have a red roof and a yellow bottom. Oh, two-tone, three-tone, four-tone. Yeah, absolutely. It has 240 different panel segments you can mix and match. It changes colors electronically? Yeah. The car's outer skin is made of electronic paper. Wow, electronic B paper. Yeah, built by a startup company called E-Ink. Hmm. And the coating segments contain millions of tiny microcapsules with different color pigments, and they change shades when electricity is applied. Wow, I wonder if they change that while you're driving down the road. The cops say, okay, we're looking for a yellow car. A well, brown yeah, one came well, by looking like that. I would think, and you're, um, yeah, when I told... Unintended consequence. Well, that's exactly what our son said this morning when I told him on the phone about this. He said, wow, be a great getaway car. Yes, because nobody would know what color it's yeah, going to be. That's right. Changing before your very eyes. Uh-huh. 
what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I wonder how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars that car cost. Oh, yeah, put this in a Tesla, then you have the perfect self-driving, <laughs> color-changing car oh, that my. will cause no distraction whatsoever. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's where the world is headed, I guess. Yeah, yeah huh. I guess you just program it up front as if you don't have enough to do oh, my God. with your panel. Just what we need. Yeah, but isn't that wild? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not quite ready for prime time yet, but it's expected to be ready in a few years. Marcia, in this early season of the new year, we have the months, January and February. We do have that, yes. What does the term February mean? Where did that month's name come from? Well, it's too feb to... Uh... <laughs> too feb. <laughs> to cheat on a test. No, yeah. honey, that's not it. Okay. Not, All right. go, not going back to your school days. February. It's not a uh, Roman god, I don't it's think. It's a Roman, uh, it's a Latin word. Okay, what is it? Februa or Februalia, which uh, means to cleanse. So it's a new month. It's a new time. Just like uh, January is named after Janus, the Roman god whose domain was gates and doors. Opening, oh, open, opening, opening new the things. new year. February is cleanse. House cleanse. cleaning. Oh, are you telling uh, yourself something? Are you telling me something? But that would be sexist. And we don't do that here. No, we don't. That's not allowed here. (laughs) No, it isn't. God, no. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right, Bob. What happens to dolphins if they provoke a puffer fish? Well, a puffer fish? Yeah, you know what those are. Those are things this, they grow, get real big and, and then they... scary looking. Yeah. There's one hanging at the local Mexican bar. What happens to dolphins if they provoke a puffer pu- fish? A puffer fish. <laughs> I know, they're embarrassed. I don't know, did they blush? <laughs> the dolphins blush. No, honey, okay, better. what's the answer? Better, they get stoned. <laughs> what? Yeah, and as a matter of self-defense, puffer fish release a toxin when irritated. That's their defense. Besides hideously ugly, they release a toxin. It's a hallucinogenic toxin. Hmm. And the adorable dolphins get so stoned (laughs) that they begin to pass the puffer fish back and forth like a hacky sack. (laughs) (laughs) That could be something to see. I would love to see that. Does National Geographic do a special on that? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's the... Oh, that's funny. Well, I've got an animal story, too. All right. Did you know that shrimp once went into space? Really? On a sandwich or? No, no, not in a sandwich. Wasn't to be meals for astronauts, no. Well, I don't know. This goes back to 1972, Apollo 16. All right, where they they tested different animals in space, you know, and so they're fish and shrimp and dogs and things like that. That's right. This was the brined shrimp. They traveled with the astronauts John Young and Charlie Duke on Apollo 16. They were part of the BioStack experiments to test the effects of cosmic rays on bacteria, spores, seeds, and brine shrimp eggs. And the experiments were designed to provide insight into possible effects of those rays on humans, too. So more than 100 brine shrimp eggs were struck by cosmic rays but they returned to Earth, many still hatched unharmed. So, uh, And then they went in space again in 1991. 44 shrimp eggs were hatched aboard. They were hatched on the space shuttle Atlantis. So shrimp came to life in outer space. First animals born in space, five shrimp. Sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> they survived and landed safely back on Earth. These are yeah. like footnotes to space missions you never heard about Shrimps before. in space. <laughs> Tiny. Did, and who ate them? Did anybody no, eat them? No, they weren't up there for being eaten. Uh, no, I mean when they brought them down. Don't did know, they Marsh. say, let's get the cocktail sauce out? That no? didn't give me that information, Okay, Marsh. fine. Okay. All right, Bob. What was the first toy to use artificial intelligence? Oh, my goodness. Now, the, I'm thinking back to my Robert the Robot days in ah, the 50s. Yeah, and uh, there was, what is, Chelsea loved it, the... Uh, Teddy Ruxpin. That's it. But yeah. this is 1998, and this oh. was more AI than... More intelligence, and I could learn from things. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, gee, I don't know what this would be. It's called the Furby. The Furby? Yeah. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Fur-covered robot, and it hit the stores <laughs> just in time for... Christmas! Of course, creating a frenzy among parents, which we've been through. Manufacturer Tiger Electronics released the first real-life robotic pet Furby. It partially resembled a hamster or a owl, depending on which one you wanted to get. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> it was the first toy of its kind. Most people didn't understand how it worked or how it learned. And the initial fervor about how it worked was so intense Wait that minute, it... fervor is that F-U-R... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. It was so intense that it led to the NSA, the what is that? National, National Security, Security Agency? To, to ban the toys from its premises. Really? It, yeah, it was also banned from the Norfolk Naval Shipyard and the Pentagon. No kidding. NSA agents believe the robots were embedded with recording devices that could allow them to listen in on sensitive topics and later replayed classified conversations. Was that because this was manufactured in a foreign country? I don't know where it was manufactured. Okay. Furby was not a spy. Going so far as to reveal that the toys were pre-programmed, the toy company had to say, no, this isn't what you think. It's only pre-programmed with about 200 words, meaning they don't actually learn anything. Okay. It's just that over time, they slowly unveiled their vocabulary. So it really wasn't artificial intelligence, which is machine learning. That's they, what that is. Well, it was believed they would react to what you said. Okay. But it actually only had 200 words it could react to. Hmm and slowly unveiled more of their vocabulary the longer the child played with it. So okay. it looked like it was learning from you. I see. I don't know. I never saw one or had Interesting. one. Interesting. So that was the Furby, and that was when, 1998? Yeah, and it was even believed, Bob, that it could launch a space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the government was worried about. That's right. It did. Oh, my it goodness. It did slow its popularity, these myths and beliefs, but more than 40 million of these revolutionary robots were sold in the first three years. Wow. <laughs> 40 million Furbies. Yeah. Hmm. Take, wonder if they could uh, take those now and reprogram to do something else. Like maybe drive a Tesla safely. <laughs> okay. Hey, I've got some uh, things that you probably didn't know were named by famous people. This is an article I found, and it's pretty interesting, okay? Okay. What doctor's name became synonymous with hypnotism? A doctor's name became synonymous with hypnotism. It started with an was M. Was it Freud? Oh, M. No, no, it wasn't Freud. It was Dr. M with mm -hmm. an M. Yeah. Um, an 18th century German physician named, named Franz Mesmer. Oh. Mesmerizing. I did read that in years past. Yeah, yes. yeah. He coined the term animal magnetism, okay. suggesting invisible fluids in the body react to the laws of magnetism. Okay. So mesmerizing, basically that became synonymous with hypnosis. He put his patients in a trance, but most of the people at the time labeled him a fraud, but from his name came the word mesmerize, okay. meaning to captivate or oh. hypnotize. Okay, what famous inventor gave his name to a word that means sound? 
Now, I've been in the sound business myself for years, and I never made this connection. So here's the term, decibel. You've heard of that. Yeah. It's a measurement of sound. Jim Decibel came up with that. After Jim Decibel. No. Do you know who it's named after? No. Last word, bell. Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. The and so the bell is decibel there. Decibel is yeah. named after Alexander Graham Bell. So the higher a decibel rating, the louder something is. We call it decibel these okay. days. But it was named after him. And I one, didn't know that. I didn't either. Okay. And I got one more name here. What cattle rancher's name became synonymous with independence? There was a cattle rancher, a 19th century Texas lawyer. Would I know this? You'd know the name. He acquired a ranch with several hundred head of cattle, and he was uninterested in being a rancher. Austin. No. So he left his cattle unbranded and let them roam free. Oh, really? And these were all cattle belonging to Samuel Maverick. Oh, really? (laughs) That's where the term comes from. I never heard of him. Maverick became a word for unbranded cattle, but today it means a person who acts individually. Yeah. Independently. Okay. He's a maverick. Uh Uh-huh. He's an unbranded person, (laughs) Marcia. (laughs) Who has the most Oscar nominations for Best Original Songs Received by One Person? Wow, the Best Original Songs Received by One Person. Was it Henry Mancini, possibly? Nope. Okay, was it somebody from that era? 1943 to 1976. Oh, my. So somebody who had been doing it. Was it Rodgers and Hammerstein? No. Okay, who was it? Okay, it was Sammy Kahn. Oh, no kidding. 26 nomination. Wow. He wrote, I don't know, you know any of his songs? Uh, you do, Time After Time, mm. All the Way, Come Fly With Me, Only the Lonely. Wow, he did uh, write a lot of good ones there. Oh, there's a ton of them. But yeah, he had the most uh, nominations for Best Original Song. Now, isn't that, that's like one of those Oscars that are from a technical aspect or from something other than acting. Most yeah. people don't even know about. Like uh-huh. Edith Head had more, oh, yeah. you know, than most any other person year, as a costume designer. Every year, me and my family would yell out, Best Designer. Okay, Edith Head. Because it was always Edith Head. All right, I think it's time for a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp for the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. We do this every week and then put it out on the World Wide Web. Motown, Bob. We've Mm -hmm. been to Motown. Stands for what? Uh, Music Town? No. Motor City Town. That's it. Motor City Town. Yeah, Motown. What was their biggest hit ever? Hmm. I think it was the Supremes hit. No. Was it Stevie Wonder? No. Who was it? It was My Girl, sung by the Temptations. It oh, no there. kidding. I had it. Did you have it? No. My Girl. No, but it was girl. a very big hit. I love this. It was. It was uh, sung by the Temptations and written by Smokey Robinson. Although, as we know, we saw Smokey in concert and he says, everybody thinks I sang this, but it was the Temptations. Yeah. <laughs> so he always <laughs> sings it at his concerts. I thought that was funny. Okay, Bob, what is the most played song in music history? Now, we're not talking happy birthday because that's people sing it and they don't play it okay. and, uh, in their houses. And you can't quantify who's... It's got to be White Christmas, doesn't it? No. No? That's maybe one of the top best-selling songs, right? Oh. But this is the most played that we have heard. Okay. In, this in, is the Microsoft theme when your computer comes on. No. Okay. Well, something like that, though. Something that's played on a machine or something? It's played in something. Okay. What is it? It's a small, 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 oh, small, small world. Not that. Yes. 
It's estimated to have been played around 60 million times. Oh, my God. In, and I was on every one of those rides. Yes, <laughs> on the Small World ride in the Magic Kingdom at the five Disney parks around the world. And, and that was originally, that ride was originally at the World's Fair in yeah. 1964. Okay, what do you got? Okay, Marsha, how old is the phrase hot mess? How far back does that date? <laughs> it sounds like a brand new expression. It does. Hey, that, oh, he was a hot mess, yeah, or he was a hot yeah, mess. I always smile when I hear that because you really have a, gives you a visual. Sounds picture. like a very modern thing to say yeah, about but somebody. It, obviously, it's not. So, no. are we talking in our lifetime? No, it's before our lifetime. You're kidding. It's before our, probably our grandparents' lifetime, so right about the same time. Okay, 1900. 1899. Well, can was you believe I close? that? Yeah. Was I close? Do I All get right, that? All right, you get the prize. Okay. Yeah, the first citation for hot mess is from an 1899 issue of the Monthly Journal of the International Association of Machinists. And it's a beautiful specimen. Verily, I say <laughs> unto you, the public is a hot mess. I'll be darned. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, say that again. Verily, I say unto they you, say that? <laughs> the, the public is a hot mess. Oh, jeez. 1899. So, and the public is a hot mess. Yeah, and it finally was picked up, I think, you know, in the 2000s, don't you, that uh, it became more of a, in the vernacular? I think the 1990s is when it uh, first came oh, to be. It's a good term. I like it. Okay, now we know twerk. We think of that as a certain kind of you sexy think of Miley, dance. Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus, right? Kind of a dance. How far back does that term go? Oh, God. Really? I thought twerk was sort of made up suddenly during Twitter time when it first came out. Well, it was made up about 160 years ago or 70. No, I don't know the answer then. Now, the dance sense of twerk began in the 1990s, but as far back as 1848, it was a verb meaning to move something with a twitching, twisting, or jerking motion. That makes sense now. Yeah. Twerking. It's got the same meaning (laughs) as it had then. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you, Marcia. According, Bob, to the newest standards. What is today considered the rarest eye color? The rarest eye color. The rarest eye color Less in the world. Less than 1% of the world population. Yellow. Has the, oh. <laughs> no, okay, maybe not. Okay. Uh, that, let's see. Less than 1%? That's, that's jaundice, people. That's true. I don't know the answer. It's gray. Really? Yeah. Less than 1% of the world population has gray. Wow. And because uh, it used to be categorized with blue so it never was pulled out oh, but then I see. they realized hey there are people with just gray eyes so don't make them blue okay two percent of the world has green hazel amber is ten percent blue is eight to ten percent and brown is 45 percent wow the- i didn't know there were that many people with brown yeah well that makes sense a lot of uh, nationalities have yeah, naturally I guess so. brown eyes Yes, and I had a girlfriend who was uh, what? Uh, had Indian what? blood in her, and she had these beautiful brown eyes. Uh, she had ugly brown eyes. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Getting on my nerves, time. Who cares Bob. about it? All right, let's talk about something else. <laughs> okay, Marcia. You're walking on thin ice, buddy. Here's one. <laughs> Where have people fished for shrimp on horseback? What is it with you and shrimp today? For okay. 700 years, oh. people have fished for shrimp on horseback in this place. How is you- it Japan, <laughs> Peru, Belgium or Alabama? Wow. Why would you fish for shrimp on horseback? That is just an unnatural combination. It's like playing a game or something, right? Yeah, let's go. I guess they went out there and scooped it up in nets. That's bizarre. Okay, I'll say China. No. (laughs) If that was only one of the answers, Marsh, it's not. (laughs) 
You didn't give me that? Japan, Peru, Belgium, or Alabama? Japan. Let's go with one that you actually put up there. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. It's (laughs) Belgium. It's Brunkirk in southwest Belgium. Brunkirk. Fishermen from about a dozen households take huge draft horses chest deep into the surf and pull nets as well as chains that create vibrations on the sand. And according to UNESCO, the vibrations cause the shrimp to jump right into the nets. No kidding. And then the seafood is stored in baskets on the horse's side. This sounds like almost a new thing. Yeah. But it's not. The horses don't naturally enjoy the water. They have to be trained for a year to work with the fishermen. But that unique method of fishing has been practiced in that area for about 700 years. And it's an important part of the local culture. So important that in 2013, UNESCO inscribed on their representative list of the intangible cultural heritages of humanity. Of humanity? <laughs> wow. If you have something strange enough, it can get on that list. <laughs> well, I kept thinking, well, how can you... Uh, shrimp don't hang out in shallows. I know. Uh, what a strange so, thing. But these are huge horses. I got that case, from uh, TravelTrivia.com. Of course you did. But originally is, it came from UNESCO. And who figured out, uh, hanging out in the water, that, oh, here's a weird-looking thing. How do how can we eat this? <laughs> and they did. It's like a lot of things. Who comes up with this I stuff? I know. I'd love to see the first person that tried some things, don't you? Oh, God. Okay, Bob, what is the hardest substance in the human body? That is your teeth enamel, I think. Oh, good for you. Isn't it? I thought for sure you'd say bone. No, I, I always heard it was teeth enamel. Yeah, it uh, protects your teeth from decay and cavities, and bone is the second strongest substance in your body. Wow. Bone is second, teeth enamel is first. <laughs> and just as a little factoid to that, to add to that, Raoul Dahl, you know, the author? Yes. He had all his teeth pulled out (laughs) at age 21 because he didn't want to be bothered with brushing and flossing. Oh, my God. Really? He thought they were more trouble than they were worth. Wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. Oh, no. Okay. Researchers used to look into residential garbage cans, and they found out what in regards to people lying about what they really did in private. (sighs) I don't know. Income tax returns? <laughs> what, what would it be? It actually is in regard to consumption. Over the years, researchers have found that people actually consume about two and a half times more alcohol than they say they do when they're interviewed. Okay. The, uh, I, That's I, easy to figure out how many I, bottles there are. Yeah. Well, okay. I noticed that with some neighbors once. She said, oh, we don't drink much. And I saw, I don't know how many bourbon <laughs> bottles going out into that can every week. Anyway. There's a book out called Rubbish by William Rothschild. He's an archaeologist and a professor of anthropology. And he said that he has found that people also eat much worse than they think they do. Mm. They found great quantities of microwave food than anything. Uh, He's been doing this for 19 years looking through people's rubbish. And then he interviews them, and people actually believe they're eating far more healthier than they really are. Well, people can always... Tell themselves something that's yeah, not true and yeah. believe it. Yeah, that uh, that little microwave dinner there had a piece of broccoli in it, so I'm good. He estimates that people today exaggerate by 50% the amount of good food in their diet. <laughs> so they drink more and, and they, they eat, eat worse more. food. Yeah, it's just we're lying to ourselves. That's the bottom line. Okay, well, this fellow invented something he thought would be healthy, but today I don't think we think of it that way. What preacher gave his name to a tasty cracker originally invented for health purposes? Let's see. What's an unhealthy cracker? It's not unhealthy. I didn't say it was unhealthy. Oh. I said we don't, we don't think of it as being healthy, per se. This is a preacher? Yeah, a preacher. 
not those wafers that uh, when you take with the wine. He was no. a no, no. Nineteenth <laughs> century clergyman. Noted, okay, tell me. Okay, his name was Sylvester Ritz. Sylvester Ritz. <laughs> No. <laughs> Graham? Graham, that's it. I was right. Sylvester Graham, 19th century clergyman known for promoting coarsely ground wheat flour to improve health. His health regimen included cold showers, hard mattresses, homemade <laughs> bread, absolutely no alcohol, <laughs> and a cracker he happened to invent. <laughs> the Graham cracker. Oh, he invented cute. it way back in like uh, 1829 originally. And you love your Graham crackers, yeah. so I can see why you were researching that at they're night. They're healthy. Later they're healthy, night. yeah. <laughs> I've convinced myself of that, that they're very healthy. No. Okay. Uh, so before my quote, my last question, and you'll like this, Bob. Okay. What is the origin of the game of hopscotch. The origin of the game of hopscotch. Do you know what I'm thinking? I thought about this. It's something like you, you do this to prisoners, make them do it, and if they land in the wrong box, you kill them. It's something like that. Something <laughs> oh, that's like, good. It's like one of those ball games they had down in the uh, in Latin America yeah, with the yeah, Mayans. The Mayans. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, you know, yeah. Your yeah. team will be killed if, it, if you uh, lose yeah. the game. You yeah. know. Okay, no clue, do you? No, what I don't have it? any clue. Okay, according to the Big Book of Answers, mm. hopscotch was brought to Britain by the Romans, who used it as a military training exercise. No kidding. Yeah. The courts were about 100 feet long, and soldiers ran them in full battle gear to improve their footwork. You know, you see uh, football players It's just like those football players doing that. Yeah. I'll be darned. So children watched them and copied the soldiers by scratching out small courses of their own, and then they made up rules and a scoring system. The scotch and hopscotch, if you're wondering, refers to the markings scored on the ground. Well, now that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You could see how that would be a good uh, athletic training event, Military, right? Military, yeah, yeah. Just like football players, like you said. Yeah, so the Roman children actually invented uh, <laughs> little hopscotch. No, the Roman legions invented yeah, it. Yes. Speaking of the military, Marcia. Okay. What musical instrument was spread by militaries? It was a nice transition. Yes. Bob. This is from uh, 1846. What? A popular musical instrument. It was patented the, in France. Oh, uh, was it the flute? Because they go marching to their death by playing an oh, instrument. Oh, I think the flutes have been around for thousands of years, Marsh. You yeah. Know, we have the Songs oh. of Solomon with the uh, flutes and lyres. Oh, you and your biblical history. This is France, 1846. A man named Adolf Sax invented something. <gasps> Saxophone. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he left no formal account of its development, but he created the saxophone. He created it for use by military bands and orchestras. Why? I don't know. It's not like brass. Yeah. You think of brass for, you know, ta-da, ta-da, trumpets. Anyway, it was quickly adopted by the French army. They were wearing berets at the time, too. And they I walked think. around with saxophones? Yes. That's not easy. And it spread from there to other countries. Well, any reed instrument, that would be more complex yeah. than a brass instrument yeah. for military purposes. But, yeah, he created it for use by military bands. Adolf Sax. I mean, well, I, I love the sax in a rock and roll band. Yeah, yeah. It, it does sound great. great. All right. I'm ending with a quote by Frank A. Clark. Quote, Criticism, like rain, should be gentle enough to nourish a man's growth without destroying his roots. Criticism, like rain, is all wet. I don't take it. Okay. <laughs> you don't like that one? Should no, I have a different no, one? No, that's okay. Oh, you have another one there? Oh, no. I heard a snort. I love that. <laughs> Every once in a while you do that. It's so feminine. Thank you. Oh, are we? Ooh. Oh, gosh, only men can snort. That's right. All right. All right, then, let's try this. I'm going to finish up with a quote that comes to me from Carol Fritz in 
Chicago. Oh, Lesnar. That's, That's our, great. Our suburb from the south. <laughs> to love and be loved is to feel the sun from both sides. A quote from David Viscott. I suspect this is because February is coming up and Valentine's Day. Oh, that's a good one. She wanted us to have that. Thank you very much, Carol. Yes. And if you have a quote or a question you'd like to send our way, you can do so by going to our website, theofframp.show, going all the way down to contact us and leave your information. Well, I think that's all for now. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again when we return next time with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.